This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanan. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we're back from a short break. We have a fantastic show today, and uh, we're going to be covering a lot of topics to keep everybody up to date on what's happening around the world, especially in Palestine. Um, There's kind of big news from the U.S. Congress that we're going to be covering. Top progressive Democrats announced that they will boycott the Israeli president, Herzog, who's coming to a joint session of Congress to give a speech. It's kind of a big deal. You know, usually uh, when this happens, everybody gets on board because both houses, both, uh, you know, everybody comes, Democrats, Republicans, and they usually celebrate the prime minister or the president. This time, progressive Democrats are are boycotting. We're going to talk about that. Unfortunately, and we're not too surprised, but we're going to be covering the uh, Israeli acquittal of a murderer, the murderer of Iyad al-Halak. He is an autistic Palestinian young man who was murdered by an Israeli border police officer, and we finally have his name. We're going to be talking about that injustice, yet another injustice in the murder of a young Palestinian man. And then I hate to admit it, Jamal, but, you know, we're ramping up to the presidential elections here in the United States, 2024, even though it's 2023, and there's a lot of really out there people who are running. We're going to be talking about one in particular, and that's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's made some really kind of crazy comments. We're going to kind of be talking about that. But before we get to all that, of course... We're going to really pay attention to this important interview you did with Eric Axelman and Sam Eilertsen, who are co-directors of a new documentary called Israeliism, and it follows the evolution of the beliefs of two American Jews and how their support for the apartheid state has changed once they experience the reality on the ground of occupation and the oppression of Palestinians. So it's kind of an interesting documentary. You interviewed both co-directors. We should uh, really pay attention. That's kind of interesting. It's very interesting. And uh, the film is coming to the Bay Area. It's going to be at the Jewish Film Festival. But uh, And I'll make the announcement about the date and where to go. So um, pay attention to this interview. It's a great film. I, I highly recommend it uh, for our listeners and viewers in the Bay Area uh, to grab this opportunity and go and watch it. A generational divide is growing among American Jews regarding the centrality of Israel to the Jewish identity. Increasingly, young Jewish community members are discovering that key narratives about Israel's creation and existence that they were taught in synagogues and Hebrew schools growing up are false. Israelism, a newly released documentary, follows the evolution of the beliefs of two young American Jews. Their unquestioning support of Israel gradually erodes as they become increasingly aware that the Zionist state is based on the past and ongoing occupation and oppression of Palestinians. The Jewish Film Festival will screen it Thursday, July 27th at the Vogue Theater in San Francisco and Sunday, August 6th at the Piedmont Theater as part of the Jewish Film Festival. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Eric Axelman 
and Sam Ellerston. They are both are founders of Tikkun Olam Productions, a nonprofit filmmaking collective focusing on documenting and supporting movements for justice. They are the co-directors of Israelism. Welcome to Arab Talk, Eric and Sam. Thanks, Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, really, really appreciate it. And we're so excited to bring the film to San Francisco in the Bay Area. And really, we really appreciate you having us on. So let me start with you, Eric. Just give us a synopsis of the two protagonists, Itan and Simone Zimmerman. What is their background and how were they involved in supporting Israel in their younger lives? Yeah, so our two main characters, Simone Zimmerman and Eitan, are American Jews who, like many American Jews, grow up in communities um, where not only the Jewish religion is central, obviously, but Israel itself is actually kind of a center part of their um, their childhood. And Israel is really kind of framed as a central, if not the central part of modern Judaism. And a lot of American Jews, not all American Jews, but a lot of American Jews grow up with this kind of narrative that Israel is kind of a center part of not only the Jewish religion, but also of our Jewish identities and supporting Israel. So supporting Israel politically is seen as a key part of what it means to be a Jew in the 21st century. And so both Simone and Eitan, Simone grows up in uh, in LA and Eitan grows up in Georgia, near Atlanta. And both of them, again, essentially are you know told by you know their teachers um, and their mentors that it is key uh, to defend Israel from essentially the lies that other people across the country um, and across the world are telling about Israel, that Israel is an apartheid state or that Israel ethnically cleansed you know, the Palestinians in 1948. And so they really grow up with this idea that Israel is kind of under attack, both physically as well as in terms of kind of, you know, arguments uh, in the U.S. And they see it as really their role um, and and a major point in their life to, to defend Israel at all costs. So Simone goes to UC Berkeley um, and becomes an Israel advocate. Um, and Eitan actually takes a step further. And in many of our Jewish communities across the U.S., the Israeli military is seen as this, you know, unbelievably kind of heroic institution, and Israeli soldiers are idolized in a pretty profound way. You know, when I was in college, I would realize that many of my friends I would look at their Facebook photos and see, you know, themselves as really young kids. So seeing my friends as really young kids, you know, hanging around Israeli soldiers and just beaming and just kind of worshiping these Israeli soldiers, and it's seen as as a really amazing thing to do to join the Israeli military, even if you're an American. And so Aton actually joins the Israeli military. Um, and he quickly, you know, is deployed to the West Bank and uh, very quickly realizes that he's actually, you know, essentially enforcing a system of apartheid. Right. He's placed in a. Yeah. And Simone, again, um, comes into contact with Palestinians um, and Palestinian narratives at UC Berkeley. And so both of them kind of pretty quickly realize that they are kind of supporting a state um, that unfortunately, again, is committing apartheid against the Palestinians and also has a long history of you know incredible oppression against the Palestinians, and so seeing um, seeing that and kind of you know seeing their awakening um, causes them to transform in a pretty profound way. That's happening not only to them, but it's happening across the American Jewish community in a pretty profound way. Sam, I mean, uh, I mean, this is an excellent introduction, Eric. But uh, Sam, I mean, I I knew Jewish Americans serve in the Israeli army, but the film brings to the forefront how even from an early age, as uh, you mentioned, there is a is the soft recruitment of young American Jews as key part of supporting uh, Israel. Talk about this uh, soft recruitment. Yeah, um, and you know, Eric and I are both Jewish, but we didn't quite grow up in um, these sort of communities that are 
um, you know, where Israel is part of everything. So I think it was interesting for us to learn more about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like Jewish day schools, Jewish summer camps, um, you know, we, in the film, you'll see like, there's, we, we have all this footage of, you know, young kids marching around with Israeli flags and, um, and, you know, every class kind of, or a lot of classes kind of incorporate, um, Israel and Jewish day schools and, um, Jewish summer camps and summer camps will often have soldiers come, um, and act as camp counselors or former soldiers. Um, there's also obviously birthright, um, a huge program that brings young American Jews on free trips to Israel and, um, gives them a very sort of indoctrinating one-sided perspective, um, and sort of just tries to, and the, the thing that actually really struck me, um, is that it wasn't just, that it was a one-sided narrative, but, um, the story that a lot of protagonists that like Simon and Eitan that we interviewed told, they actually were like Palestinians were entirely erased. Simon said she went to college, not even really understanding what a settlement was, um, you know, not understanding both of them said they didn't really understand who Palestinians were other than like, quote, people who wanted to kill Jews, like <laughs> just this very, um, you know, extremely bigoted, um, way of thinking about the Palestinians in the conflict. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's kind of incorporated in it. And to be clear, this isn't every single Jewish community. There are some that are much less focused on Israel, particularly um, these days, as more folks in the community grow, um, you know, uncomfortable with the role of the, the way the Israeli government behaves and the role that it plays in the community. But um, in a lot of mainstream Jewish communities, yeah, you know, everything from like, you know, the weekly services at synagogue to the classes you take um, in school will all incorporate Israel in some way. Just this place that is so wonderful and the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish people, Bethany, um, etc. Uh, Eric, can you explain Itan's camp experience in the film and Simone's uh, what uh, referred to as military light activity when she was in Israel? Uh, how it how 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 it was made to seem like a cool and and fun activity? Yeah, yeah. So one of the main characters, Eitan, um describes a relatively common experience in a lot of Jewish summer camps. And again, not every Jewish summer camp. Um, but a lot of Jewish summer camps, essentially, again, a lot of the counselors are uh, Israelis, and many of them are either current or past Israeli soldiers, and they often do military games, so essentially military exercises with relatively young kids. Um, and again, in some ways, kind of similar to ROTC in America, and again, you know, in, in many ways, you know, America indoctrinates young people to join the military as well. The American military, so in some ways, it's not that dissimilar, equally disturbing. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, they, you know, oftentimes play, you know, Israeli military games um, with, you know, Israelis, you know, kind of counselors giving, you know, Israeli military commands. Um, and it's seen as kind of this exciting thing as a young kid, right? When you're a young kid, you're kind of mentors, um, your camp counselors are doing this and kind of telling you that this is a really important thing and that we're doing this to defend our country and to defend our homeland. And when you're a young, impressionable kid, it, it makes you kind of think that this is a really important thing to do. Um, and Simone describes, you know, this is pretty common when when a lot of young people take, young American Jews take organized trips to Israel, there's pretty frequently um, military components of it where you can spend time on an Israeli military base, essentially doing um, Israeli military boot camp. Um, and so we have a lot of footage in the film um, that was released either by Creative Commons or, or footage that we were able to use through fair use of American Jewish kids, you know, teenagers um, playing, you know, essentially doing Israeli boot camp. 
um, in Israel with Israeli soldiers. And, and Simone describes the fact that about 10% of her graduating class of her Jewish high school in LA, in Los Angeles, joined the Israeli military. Um, wow. And that's pretty wild. And again, that is an extreme. Again, like not, again, I've, I've never heard of a high school having that many um, kids join the Israeli military, but it happened. Um, and again, you know, when I went to college, I met, you know, people who, you know, American Jews who just got back from the Israeli military. Um, and again, I didn't grow up in exactly that kind of environment, um, but I began to realize that this kind of, this glorification of the Israeli military in a lot of our culture has very serious ramifications in the fact that we're getting very young, impressionable, impressionable kids to not only join a foreign military, but to fo- but to join a foreign military that is very literally uh, enforcing a system of apartheid. Um, and just the great tragedy of that, um, not only for obviously the kids who are doing it, but obviously the Palestinians who have to bear the brunt uh, of that apartheid. And so we really wanted to, to go into that in our film and really show that. And we also show um, a, a Hillel uh, educator at the University of Yukon was very similar to the um, Hillel educators at my college when I went there, you know, openly talking about how wonderful it is that many of the young people she's taught have joined the Israeli military and kind of yet yeah, bragging about about all the kids that that she has helped join the Israeli military. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, our community has to really come to terms with and and really think very seriously about what we're you know, encouraging very young, impressionable kids to do. The film states that 60,000 of the 450,000 in the in the Israeli military are American, and of course, oh, that, 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 oh, sorry, that, that, that's um, that's settlers in the uh, in the in West Bank. So that's American Jewish settlers, I believe. I'm sorry. Out of the out of the American Jewish settlers, I mean, this is a very high high number. I mean, I, I mean, aside from all what is referred to as Hasbara or, or propaganda and the excitement, because you had a great opening where uh, you're showing, you know, handsome Israelis and uh, good-looking, you know, young people and uh, dancing and like like it's a rock concert. It makes it very exciting. But is yeah. there anything taught about the danger that goes with this? That's a great question. I mean, I think, I think and Sam can talk about this in a second as well, I think there's a growing realization within our community um, that, you know, this, you know, very one-sided narrative that yeah makes Israel just seem like this you know kind of rock star nation, this incredibly kind of attractive place that's just kind of fun and kind of the you know, culmination of our people's dreams is very dangerous because it simply doesn't reflect the actual reality in any kind of way, um, and encourages many of our young people to support Israel unconditionally. And when we actually find out what Israel actually is, again, Israel is very similar to America in many ways. Our histories are actually very similar. And that, you know, it started out with, you know, one people displacing another people, um, but also trying to claim that it's a liberal democracy. Um, And I think luckily in America, we can realize that our history is tragic and that we have caused, you know, unbelievable suffering to people who lived here before. And I think it's time for American Jews and Israelis to recognize that Israel has a very similar history and that we need to come to terms with the the great suffering um, that the state of Israel has caused um, the Palestinian people to face. The price of settler colonialism. I mean, I mean, when you talk about America, Canada, or you know, many countries in Africa and so forth. Uh, uh, let's go back to uh, the main characters, Ethan uh, uh, and Simone. Later on, they became uh, increasingly aware of uh, what is really going on. Simone began speaking out in the United States about the reality of Israeli occupation and settlement of Palestinian land. 
many American Jews uh, supported her, but there was a lot of hate and vitriol as well. Uh, Sam, talk about her role as Bernie Sanders' Jewish outreach coordinator in his 2016 presidential bid. Yeah, um, it's quite a story. So, um, you know, first of all, within the film, one of the um, folks we interviewed who um, sort of represents um, in some ways an antagonist in the film is Abe Boxman, um, former director of the Anti-Defamation League, um, who, you know, directed what originally was intended to be sort of a civil rights organization protecting American Jews from anti-Semitism, and it did play an important role doing that you know, back in the 50s and 60s when there was institutional discrimination against um, Jews and, and continues to do that to some extent, but largely has become an organization that attacks um, critics of Israel, calls them anti-Semites, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I say that because um, this is where his story intersects with Simone's. Um, so Simone was um, offered the job of being a Jewish garbage coordinator for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, and to be clear, Bernie Sanders has been really more than anyone else in any kind of quote, mainstream American politics um, willing to criticize Israel and stand up for Palestinian rights. So overall, his his record on this, um, I would say, is very good, and he's had a very positive role in sort of moving the conversation. Um, but in this particular place, he sort of caved to pressure. So um, Simone was, you know, given this job, and um, within a week or so. Um, reporters started writing articles, you know, digging up her past criticisms of Benjamin Netanyahu and of the commu Jewish community and America's relationship with Israel. Um, she was a co-founder of an organization called If Not Now, which is um, sort of a movement of young Jews um, calling out the community's support of the occupation um, and the Israeli government. And um, so journalists, you know, dug up old Facebook posts where she you know, said uh, the F word to Netanyahu and things like that and, and use it to smear her and it ended up in the New York Times and um, Abe Foxman, who had just recently retired, um, came out and, and called for her to be fired um, in the campaign and, and that's exactly what happened, unfortunately. She was I, was, I was kind of disappointed with Bernie Sanders, I mean, to tell yeah. you the truth. I mean, uh, it was a surprise, let's put it this way, it was a surprise to me that he succumbed basically to APEC. You know, when you talk about the Foxman came out of retirement and contacted, <laughs> contacted him basically to fire her. Yeah, and I mean, it was, it was death. Well, I Go was ahead, just going to say, I think, you know, in some ways, um, people talk about, you know, people on the right complain about, quote unquote, cancel culture, but there's no more intense cancel culture than what, um, you know, the, the pro-Israel lobby tries to do to anyone criticizes them or criticizes the Israeli government. Um, and um, yeah, it definitely, the fact that that happened in 2016 definitely speaks to um, the fact that even Bernie couldn't, felt like he couldn't stand up to that or didn't want that kind of publicity. I think um, the fact that now you have um, folks like Ilhan Omar reputed to leave and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Congress, um, who obviously also endured immense amounts of that they tax, um, but the fact that you know they've Bernie in 2020, um, people from the Perugia community criticized him for you know basically accepting their endorsements and using them as spokespeople, and kind of told them 
to go away. So I think he would have caved less to pressure in 2020. I think things are moving in a positive direction um, because of, of the, the work of leaders like um, you know, some of these uh, folks in Congress and the squad who sort of pushed the envelope on the issue. Eric, uh, uh, Itan was deeply affected and disillusioned about his experience in the IDF. Explain how it was a moral reckoning for him. Yeah, and I think, you know, for for, uh, for many young American Jews, right, they know nothing, you know, they're kind of, they grew up, you know, we, we, we grew up in this world in which, you know, Israel can do no wrong. Um, Israel is this, you know, like only the democracy in the Middle East. It's, that's the kind of narrative that we're told. And Eitan, again, as a very young person, I think it's important to know, you know, how young American Jews are when they join the Israeli military, if they do. Now, these are 18, 19 year old. These are kids. These are really young. You know, these are kids. And so when Eitan is serving the Israeli military, he both, you know, witnesses kind of just the every day to day kind of system of apartheid that denies Palestinians very basic rights. And he also witnesses um, very uh, specific um, you know, pretty unconscionable brutality towards specific Palestinians. So he recounts a story in which um, he is um, on a military base um, near Hawara, um, which has, you know, the place of, of where Israeli settlers have had um, pogroms recently. And he's told to pick up this young Palestinian uh, detainee. He isn't told anything about him, just told to pick up this detainee, bring him back to the um, military base. So he goes and he gets the um, Palestinian detainee who is blindfolded with his hand tied behind his back. He's a very young man, his early 20s at, at most, brings him back to the base. And then right outside the base, these other Israeli soldiers um, just grab the Palestinian detainee from him, throw him to the ground, and start violently kicking him um, over and over again for multiple minutes. And Eton is just sitting there watching. This is, you know, he's 18 years old. This is one of the first things. He, he was just thrown into the occupation. And his commanding officer is just watching and not saying anything. And a military police officer is just smoking a cigarette, watching, doing nothing. And Eton is just kind of frozen and wants to say something, but his commanding officer isn't saying anything. And the military police officer isn't saying anything. So what's he supposed to do? And he ultimately doesn't say anything. And then you later bring, and then, then they just bring the detainee into the base and he never sees him again. And so that is a major moment for him in recognizing that something is very deeply wrong here. But from what he recounts, it still took him, you know, you know, many years after he left the military to realize that not, not only obviously he realized that was wrong in the beginning, but takes him a long time to realize that just the things he did on the every day to day, just manning checkpoints, patrolling villages, that that in and of itself was immoral and that that in and of itself is apartheid. And that again, you know, a military occupation in which, you know, one population has the full rights, they have the freedom of speech, they can vote in elections and the other population has no basic civil rights and they can be detained and they can be detained for any reason by any 18 year old Israeli soldier. Is a system of apartheid, and so it takes him a while to recognize that. But to his credit, he does. And there's enough American Jews who've both joined the Israeli military and also realize that they are enforcing a system of apartheid. That there's now like a breaking the silence group of American Jews right. um, who are speaking out against, um, you know, the community that really encouraged them um, to do this. And I think it's it's tragic that our community encourages, you know, very young impressionable to do this. Um, but it's it's. I'm glad that that people are speaking up and saying that you know that this is enough and that we can't support this anymore. I remember uh, interviewing the uh, co-founder of Breaking the Silence, uh, Shavrim Shtika, and he uh, recounted his experience that there was like this uh, 
kind of a turning point in in someone's life and it and for him was when he was assigned to Hebron and then his commander told him just to shoot uh, what he referred to the Mikla which is I think it's like a RBJ uh, weapon and, and and he said where and he said just shoot don't ask me questions and then he realized that he's just like you know looking at Hebron if you you know so crowded that he was just gonna kill or injure someone he uh, was innocent and didn't know and then and and that was the turning point for him to basically start that organization after he left I'll break the silence I've personally seen breaking the silence impact a lot of young American Jews when I was a student at Brown I was part of a student group that brought breaking the silence to my campus and other groups also brought breaking the silence and I think because a lot of American Jews kind of venerate and um, glorify Israelis in general. I think a lot of Americans in general, American Jews were kind of taught that Israeli culture and Israeli society is this amazing thing that we should venerate. Actually seeing Israelis themselves talk about the brutality of the occupation and talk about this system of apartheid is, is very impactful for a lot of young American Jews. Um, and so, yeah, and you know, I, I think their work can be very impactful and, and seeing them um, talk and seeing, you know, we actually met Eitan, seeing him actually at an American Breaking the Silence event speaking publicly about his experiences and it's very powerful. So both of you, I mean, you started talking a little bit about you were raised in a in, in Jewish household. You weren't, you know, too much into the Israel scene and and uh, and so forth. However, I mean, both of you are well versed on the topic. You're, you 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 re, you realize what's going on. Uh, talk to us about your experience. I mean, what uh, you know, what brought you together first of all. That, that both yeah. of you kind of think uh, similarly about the occupation. You, you, you call Israel an apartheid state, which is, we used to call it the, the A word, you know, people, you know, no one wanted to mention the word apartheid, but you freely say that. And, yeah. uh, you know, you both think kind of think alike. I mean, what brought you together and what gave you the idea to, to start this project? Yeah, I can start off and then, and then Sam can join. So again, so I grew up Jewish in rural Maine, actually. So my parents were kind of, you know, hippies who moved to Maine uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, and um, my Hebrew school growing up, I went to a conservative Hebrew school. Actually, Israel was not talked about as a central part of Judaism in, in my synagogue. We had a kind of older rabbi and to him it was just kind of Torah, 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 um, you know, for better or worse. And in some ways, I'm, I'm pretty grateful for that. Um, but growing up in rural Maine, you know, I, being a Jew made me feel different, right? It was, I'm, I was one of the only Jewish kids growing up in my area and I didn't kind of, you know, I, I didn't really find a kind of modern Jewish identity that really related to me. Um, after my bar mitzvah, I got the book Exodus by Leon Uris, which is kind of a kind of traditional, um, in many ways, kind of the classic kind of pro-Zionist, pro-Israel text. And I read it and I totally fell in love with Israel. Um, it was a modern kind of Jewish identity that I could relate to in the 21st century. It embodied strength, whereas again, growing up, it's very difficult to learn about the Holocaust and learn about the immense suffering that Jews have gone through. And so learning about this kind of heroic tale of Jewish kind of, you know, statehood and Jewish peoplehood was incredibly inspiring to me as a young person. And I began reading everything I could about Israel. So it wasn't really forced on me. I kind of discovered Israel myself and totally fell in love. We have Israeli relatives through marriage. I'm actually related to Levi Eshkol, the prime minister who began the occupation. So unfortunately, I have familial ties um, to that. Um, my senior year of high school, a teacher of mine, I was doing an independent study on the history of Zionism. I wanted to learn more about the history of Zionism. And a non-Palestinian, non-Jewish teacher just gave me a bunch of 
left-wing Israeli historians and Palestinian historians. Um, and I read these books and I realized that the narrative that I had fallen in love with, um, kind of like, again, the traditional American narrative, just did not include the Palestinians as fully equal human beings and only saw them essentially as an obstacle um, to the kind of Israeli goals. And I began, I became kind of fascinated in how and why I'd become so attached to that narrative um, and, and began interested in it. Were other young Jewish people kind of realizing that the narrative that they had learned had a lot of really basic and, you know, kind of holes in it. So Sam and I both went to Brown University. And um, I, when, when we, I both, you know, I, I really began to see all these young Jewish people who had really grown up in similar environments to Simone and Eitan, thinking that Israel was really the cornerstone of their Jewish identity and that they needed to support Israel at all costs. And they came to campus thinking that they would be kind of you know, soldiers for Israel on our campus. But inevitably, they met Palestinians. They met Palestinian students and they read Palestinian books. And I began seeing them transform very quickly. Some of them, you know, went from, you know, the Students for Israel group to the J Street group or further left very quickly. And seeing that transformation made me realize that my own transformation was happening kind of, you know, across the country in a pretty profound way. And, you know, even the absolute most, you know, diehard pro-Israel students on our campus that I personally knew now do work fighting for Palestinian equal rights. And so seeing that transformation occur before my eyes made me realize that this was not, this was a, a widespread phenomenon. And then I met Sam, and Sam was kind of in a similar political place to me and was an incredible cinematographer. And I had this idea for this documentary, and Sam has been working with me since the very beginning. And Sam, uh, I mean, talk a little bit about yourself and about your experience, but also what led you to to uh, Itan and, uh, you know, I mean, the whole idea, how did you formulate yeah. the idea and then decide, well, we're going to have these two characters here and, and have them totally. share that experience. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up, um, pretty secular Jewish background. Like my family didn't go to synagogue a lot. I didn't go to, um, Jewish day school. And I would say my family has represents a pretty wide range, a pretty wide spectrum of views on, um, Israel and Palestine. So I definitely grew up with it always being sort of an argument, um, at family gatherings, but, um, so, you know, didn't really have a one-sided perspective of anything. I sort of grew up thinking, oh, well, you know, it's the conflict. Both sides have done bad things, um, blah, blah, blah. I think um, once I had gone to college, um, I actually saw, I think, break, I saw a Breaking the Silent Soldier um, speak, which I think, I don't know if that was you, your group that had brought them to campus or someone else, Eric, but, um, but that was very sort of a, an awakening moment for me realizing, oh, it's not just like, both sides have done bad things, but there there is sort of an occupation um, going on, and there's something profoundly unfair um, being done to Palestinians. Um, and like Eric, you know, read a lot of history by um, left-wing Israeli historians and Palestinian historians. You know, Edward Said um, was very influential for me. Um, and in terms of the documentary, um, you know, it was Eric sort of had the initial concept of making a, a film about. Um, American Jews' relationship with Israel. Um, and, you know, I sort of suggested, well, maybe we should try to interview the founders of, um, if not now, because they were sort of in the news a lot at the time, they were protesting outside of APAC and things like that. Um, so that was how we met Simone. Um, Eitan, I actually met just like, I, I saw him speak at a Breaking the Silence um, event in, in Boston. I went to film it just to film the event and just thought his story was really powerful. and. Um, he agreed to do an interview. Um, and to be honest, like we, it took us, this is our first, both of our first um, documentary directors. So it took us a good, I mean, we worked on it for seven years. It took us a long time to figure out exactly what the story was. 
um, and kind of wrestled with it. And, you know, there's a, we, we interviewed a lot more people that actually made the cut. So it was definitely a learning and discovering process for us. Uh, what about pushback from the community? I mean, uh, I know the film is just been released, but you're, you're getting some publicity. Yeah. Have you, I don't want to ask you, have you received any hate mail or any, any threats or something like that? But yeah, Facebook yeah, yeah. comments are great, but, you know, I didn't start to read those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, that's that's part of it. And we knew that we'd get pushback. Um, we have gotten pushback. We released a viral trailer a little more than a month ago, I think, and which got almost a million views. And that's when it kind of, I think, went came on a lot of people's radar for the first time. Um, so Abe Foxman in the film began attacking us, um, which is fine. He has obviously the right to do Pretty so. Publicity. Um, he attacked us on Twitter as well as, yeah. And he went on um, Jewish Broadcasting Service, which is kind of a, a right-wing kind of small cable and internet show um, to attack the film. But also said, we, so we sent him the film, but also admitted that he only watched 10 minutes of the film in the show. So we encourage him to watch the entire film. Um, I'm not actually sure he knows everything he says in the film currently, because um, I don't think he's actually watched it. Um, but yeah, so we did our first university screening at UCLA, um, and uh, there was a lot of pushback. Uh, the professor who hosted us posted on Facebook um, that I can send you the info, but many organizations and individuals tried to get the event canceled. Many organizations and individuals tried to get him fired um, just for hosting this film. He's a Jewish professor who just wants to have dialogue um, about Israel and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, we're going to be announcing a huge national screening tour in about a month. We're going to be doing uh, you know, at least 30 to 40 universities across the country in the fall and we expect there to be pushback um but that's kind of the point of the film right the film talks about that the film talks about the pushback that young american jews and american jews in general get when they're just honest about what's actually happening well that's actually my my next question because israel uh, uh, israel settler violence and right-wing kahanas extremists are now becoming mainstream right in israel Jewish Americans, particularly younger ones are increasingly increasingly realizing that israel does not align with their values, yes. uh, Jewish or other. Yet, there is a faction that who will support Israel at all costs, like no, no matter what. So, who do you hope this film will have the most influence on? It's a great question. Go ahead, Tim. Well, yeah, I was going to start by saying, um, yeah, I think it is an awakening moment that we're going through um, right now because the Israeli government has become so um, over-the-top right wing and so i think more people are starting to question and i think um you know a big part of our audience is jewish americans who are sort of somewhere along the journey that zaman and Etan, um ended up on where they maybe recognize that there's something wrong or something bothering them but to help them kind of understand um the extent of it like it's not just this one bad government but it's a, it's a bad system um so yeah i think i we we hope to reach um, as many, you know, student, particularly students, as well as, you know, go to synagogues and community centers and uh, reach an older audience that's starting to, I think, understand a little bit more um, what's going on. And also, you know, or maybe hearing from their kids um, who are not so happy with the things they were told in, in um, day school and camp. Um, so, yeah, I think we're, we're trying to reach as wide an audience as possible. Um, particularly Jewish audience, but also, um, you know, have, have had great reception to this from um, Arab and Palestinian audiences and just from audiences in general. Yeah, I think, 
Yeah, I think, you know, one thing, obviously, you know, American Jews are obviously, you know, a major audience of ours. We care, obviously, we're, we're, we're Jewish. We care about this film because we, we deeply care about our community and our community has gone through so much incredible suffering, but we don't want to see, you know, our community perpetuate the cycle of violence on another group of people. Um, and so this comes from a place of love and this also comes from a place of, you know, we just, we don't want our people to be complicit in the oppression of another people, um, you know, period. Um, and we think it's also, again, relevant for just American audiences in general. And, you know, hopefully this can just be an American story about, you know, Americans coming to terms with what's actually happening in Israel-Palestine. And again, you know, obviously, as you mentioned before, we openly use the word apartheid. It gives us no joy, use the word apartheid. Um, but when you see it, and I've been there many times, when you see it on the ground, that is what it is. Um, and we hope that, again, and we also hope that, you know, we can show Americans that it's it's critical to both fight for equality and the basic rights of Palestinians while also fighting against real anti-Semitism in the U.S. and across the world. That anti-Semitism, for the first time in my life, the past five, six years, has become something that I worry about very frequently. And again, as part of the kind of surging white nationalism and white supremacy in general, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories uh, are surging in America. And again, you know, for the first, you know, violence towards uh, um, Jewish Americans has surged in the past six years. Um, and so we think it's very important for Americans to realize that you can fight, that fighting for Palestinian rights does not make you anti-Semitic, nothing to do with anti-Semitism, but we also need to fight against anti-Semitism. And you can do both. You can fight for Palestinian equality while also fighting for the rights and dignity of, of all people and wherever we live. Israelism, uh, it's a great documentary. Uh, I recommend our audience to, to go and watch it. It's going to be at the Jewish Film Festival yeah, this, at Thursday, July 27th, at the Vogue Theater in San Francisco, and Sunday, August 6th, at the Piedmont Theater as part of the Jewish Film Festival. Eric and Sam, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thanks thank so you so much. Truly, truly appreciate you, Jamal. Thank you so much for your work. My pleasure. Well, that's the voice and the face of both Eric Axelman and Sam Eilertsen, co-directors of this new documentary on Israeliism. And it's about the kind of journey of two American Jews whose belief and evolution of their kind of fidelity and love for Israel had changed once they saw the reality on the ground. It's a compelling documentary, it sounds like, Jamal. It sounds like it's really worth looking at. It's definitely a great documentary. And it's like I mentioned during the interview, it's in the Bay Area, coming soon. And uh, we've had, you know, just, uh, you know, several outspoken, uh, both uh, Israeli Americans or actually Israeli guests, uh, especially young ones, uh, very progressive, who yeah. have, have seen um the uh the lies that they've been fed uh, all their lives and once they especially those who served in in the israeli occupation army once they go there and they see and we've had refuseniks who served there and decided uh you know that's it i'm not gonna do it anymore right. and they've become really uh, major advocates and outspoken against apartheid the occupation of course, they are vilified. I mean, I mean, this is the worst time, really, uh, for to be in sadly to be in Palestine under a fascist Israeli government bent on basically uh, ethnic cleansing. Palestinians, we're seeing that on a daily basis. You have criminals 
who are running the government, like even by Israeli standards, like right. Edmar Ben-Gavir and Smotrich. I mean, those are really, you know, convicted criminals. Uh, they are terrorists. Right. Yet they are now holding uh, ministerial positions uh, in, in the government. Not to say well, that th- Benjamin Netanyahu is an angel. He's not. But <laughs> they, I mean, you thought like when you had Benjamin Netanyahu, you've seen the worst of it. Well, you haven't. Not even close. Well, that's why this documentary is so important, Jamal, because it's occurring at a time and it's topical because, uh, you know, just in the last uh, day, you know, Israeli military reservists said that they would strike and refuse to serve the Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu if these judicial reforms uh, continue to go forward, which it looks like they will. And we get nothing but uh, tepid kind of, uh, you know, kind of very light, gentle slaps on the wrist by the Biden administration and the EU, despite this really aggressive, as you call it, fascist apartheid regime. And so it's kind of ironic, right? You have the U.S. administration failure to criticize this this grotesque, you know, version of the Israeli uh, government, the EU failure, yet you have American American Jewish community members who actually go there, see the reality, and are ready to provide kind of a dose of reality. But it seems like our politicians and policymakers in the United States and in Europe are not even paying attention to Jewish voices who say enough is enough. And I think this documentary should be sent to every congressman, congresswoman, senator, the administration to see, because it seems to me they turn a blind eye to all the atrocities and they'd rather read press releases from APAC and uh, and talking points basically, and that's that's why it's this documentary. It's so important. So on this topic, just progressive U.S. lawmakers have announced their intentions to boycott President Israeli President uh, Isaac Herzog's address to a joint session of Congress. Uh, you know, coming up, it started after Congresswoman Ilhan Omar announced there w- that there would be no way in hell. She would be in attendance. <laughs> and of course, they're all attacking her, all the Hasbaristas, everyone, including their Democrats s- and Republicans, surrogates in Congress, attacking her, yeah, yeah. calling her an anti Semite for saying, I mean, here is, a, here is a Congresswoman who was denied, with, if you remember, with Rashida Tlaib, entry into a country that we give billions and billions and billions of dollars to, to go visit. You know, because they wanted to go to, to in a real fact-finding mission. In other words, you know, on the mission without not being chaper- uh, uh, held hands and, and driven right. to right. Hasbara uh, people uh, uh, to avoid talking to Palestinians, and they they denied them. And so, uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman, Congresswoman Alexandria. Ocasio Cortez and Congresswoman Cory Bush of Missouri and Rashida Tlaib also would not be attending. As uh, Representative uh, Cory Bush said, and I'm quoting here, Congress should not be giving a platform to the president of a country that shows no respect for human rights. That seems very direct and straightforward, Jamal, and it's quite a it's quite a strong. Statement. It's an accurate statement. But here we have a handful of uh, progressive Democrats, as you say. It's a very important statement. They're all being attacked. 
But my question back to you is, in the face of the uh, uh, of the ethnic cleansing and murder of Palestinians almost every day in historic Palestine, with this attempt now to kind of strip away any semblance, any illusion of de- of democracy in this apartheid state, with you know international world condemnation of these so-called ju- judicial reforms, why is there a joint session of Congress anyways? And why are these individuals going to be giving a platform to the Israeli president who represents such a grotesque form of totalitarianism in historic Palestine? Why? I mean, there's more going to the story of these individuals who are not going to attend, who are going to boycott, rather than calling out the 400, 500 plus others who are going to attend this outrageous uh, speech. Because it's sickening. Yes, because it's sickening. Uh, sadly, this administration and Congress and the Senate are beholden to the Israeli lobby APAC, which should be registered Still. as a foreign agent. It is I mean, a this, foreign agent. Actually, I was looking into it, and the, and, and, and the first president to call it as a foreign agent or wanted to have it registered as a foreign agent is, is JFK. And then, of course, yeah. he got, uh, you know, assassinated, but... But he was like really bewildered. Why wasn't APAC registered as a foreign agent? And uh, they just decide to turn a blind eye. And in fact, they APAC now is being aggressive, attacking Ilhan Omar and and having its surrogates in Congress. Everyone is jumping on the uh, on the bandwagon, calling her all. Kind, I mean, the, the, really, the first Muslim African woman in Congress, imagine. It's outrageous. They're going after her. It's not like, you know, just for saying, I don't want to, you know, if she said, I don't want to visit Ireland, nobody would have said anything. They boycotted uh, Modi from India because of their atrocities. No one has said, uh, no one said anything. But to boycott attending Israel, all of a sudden, they're, they're attacking her. I think they are a bunch of hypocrites and Islamophobes uh, to bat, you know. And, um, you know, it's a handful, but it's meaningful. You know, the last, time, the last time Democrats, and I'm not talking about the whole Congress, Democra- the Democratic members of Congress did not attend a speech by an Israeli leader. When did yeah. this happen? No, when? During President Barack Obama, when Netanyahu bypassed and, and, and Congress invited him and criticized because uh, he criticized Barack Obama uh, over his uh, attempts at, a th- at the time to secure a nuclear agreement with Iran, nearly right. 60 Democratic members of Congress did not attend that speech. Where, where are they now, Jamal? Where are those but, 60 But think about it to... even in general. Just think about the, humi- uh, the humiliation that you have if a foreign leader bypassing the president of the United States gets enti- invited by a joint session of Congress because Obama didn't want to meet with him because he was like going crazy attacking uh, Barack Obama. And then Congress, yet Congress, they invited him and attended. Okay, 60 did not uh, show up to show solidarity with the president, but here you have a handful. But I'll, I'll make it even worse for you, Jamal. 
this week when the Biden administration offered this very weak condemnation of the building of 4,500 new illegal colonial settlements in, in the West Bank and occupied Palestine. You had Ben Gavir and some other of the uh, 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 members of the Knesset basically saying to the president, and I, we can't repeat this on the air, but to go F himself, to go, you know, you mind his own business. So you have the members of the Knesset telling the president of the United States and the U.S. government to go F themselves, to go mind their own business when they get almost $4 billion a year and military aid from this country, telling them, the people who write the check for these guys, telling them to go F off. It is outrageous that members of Congress are going to celebrate and welcome the president of this apartheid state. And it's then outrageous. people wonder why Israel gets away with murder, gets away Literally. With, you know, with really impunity. Lit- when, you have, when you have lawmakers like this who just are willing to give a wink and a nod for Israel to continue its uh, occupation, its ethnic cleansing, its population transfer, and so on, and writing always that $4 billion check year, year after year. In fact, I think I read something they've increased like $500 million for some, some new military gear for the Israelis. When uh, then they deny uh, students uh, loan forgiveness uh, right. because right. Uh, you know they argue right. over it, and then they stand in the way of uh, young students and want to keep them buried in, in in student loans for the rest of their lives. Well, that that's a good segue, Jamal, to our second uh, our second uh, topic today. Because speaking of Israel getting away with murder, literally. You know, the Israeli border police murdered this young Palestinian autistic boy, Iyad al-Halak, and he was let go. The murderer was not charged with anything. In front of uh, the poor parents and the crying mother uh, just in Jerusalem, a Jerusalem court acquitted the border police officer, and they called it of involuntary reckless manslaughter. Okay. Involuntary reckless manslaughter. That might be a charge given to a DUI, maybe. Maybe someone who, uh, you know, killed somebody while driving. Okay. And this is for shooting this poor young man. He's autistic. In cold blood. He's autistic. Yes. He's autistic. His family described him as uh, someone whose comprehension is like a six year old. I mean, he has, uh, and he was going on his way. Uh, to with his, uh, I guess, care caregiver, uh, on his way to special to a special educational need school when he was murdered, and then they said the uh, border policeman told him in Hebrew to stop. Well, his family said his comprehension is six year old and he doesn't speak Hebrew, so I yelled at him to stop, and he went to hiding. He said, "I'm with her. I'm with her." This is according to eyewitnesses. And then she was uh, pleading with him, his uh, caregiver. She was pleading with the soldiers, and then, they, sh- and then they, they shot him, and now they uh, acquitted him. And you know what uh, Itmar Ben-Gavir, which, which we mentioned, uh, the Minister of National Security, said, I welcome the acquittal. 
he was saying. Our heroic fighters who go out to defend us and the entire state of Israel will receive a hug and full support from me and the Israeli government. That's his, this is his Well, statement. yeah, yeah, that's right. Welcoming the heroes who murder autistic children. Yeah. I mean, so, that's real, but that's really heroic if you think about it, Jamal. They murder a, an autistic uh, child, basically. Very, very, very violent. But very, that's the, but I know, but that's the Israeli definition of heroism. When you murder autistic Palestinian children, you're a hero. That tells you about the the current status of the apartheid state, so, right? So the unnamed police officer uh, who killed uh, Iyad al-Hallak uh, on May 30th, 2020, uh, his, uh, the, as a defendant, he was granted uh, anonymity by the court uh, following a request from the Israeli uh, border police, and uh, we know his identity thanks to Richard Silverstein, who is a contributor to the show. So the murderer, which we'll say it on this show, is Ilyor Yaakov. And uh, if someone wants to learn about his identity, go to Richard's uh, Silverstein uh, website, and he has he posted his picture, his identity, and I should I think his identity should be shown to the entire world because he's a murderer, and he's gonna get promoted, and he's gonna go back on the street to do what just again kill again M- murder. I think they should send that uh, piece of information to the International Criminal Court while they're at it, Jamal. Yeah, so uh, we have a few minutes left, Jess, but I couldn't help it. But Where do we... <laughs> man, I mean, the so camp- you're surprised that I think Trump's going to win? The campaign hasn't, when... hasn't started yet, and when uh, you think about Robert F. I, Kennedy Jr. and I don't oh know about God. those people who like are following uh, the news of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or think about voting for him or think about he's a better alternative to Joe Biden. I don't know. What is he? What is he on? Is he on crack? Is he? Uh, I don't know. Is, did he, or when he speaks, he didn't doesn't take his medication. So, a couple of weeks ago, or three, four weeks ago, we talked about him. You know, if you remember when, uh, uh, right? He accused uh, Roger Waters. You know, famous Roger Waters right. from Pink Floyd. After he praised him, you know, first he, he praised him, he said he admired, uh, you know, and then somebody whispered something in his ears, and then he went on saying that Israel's critics are applying a double standard. Just just days after praising him for uh, combating the high priest of the totalitarian orthodoxies. This is how what he said. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then... Uh, uh, he went, uh, turned against him, you know, and he said uh, that this that Rajas applied a different standard to judging Israel than they would be judging Arab countries. And, of course, uh, Arab countries are not occupying Israel or other countries, I think, at least. And then I think that you... And have, they don't get that money, and they uh, don't get that kind of money, except for Egypt, maybe, yeah, but yeah, they don't get that kind of and money. And then he lectures uh, Roger and said, you've crossed a line there, and I don't think that Roger, uh, that Roger does that, and blah, 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 blah. You know, so, okay, that passed. Then I was, like, scrolling through my Twitter, and then I see him speaking again, sitting in a restaurant in the Upper East Side uh, in Manhattan, 
And uh, he's basically, I don't have the, all the exact quotes, but I'm sure millions of people have seen it. And he basically dished out a wild COVID-19 conspiracy theory this week. Uh, and he, he, the press was with him. This was a press event, yes. It wasn't like a social right. event. So the press event right. in the Upper East Side restaurant claiming that he calls COVID the bug, the bug was a genetically engineered bioweapon that may have been ethnically targeted to spare Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people. That's the craziest freaking thing I've ever heard in my life. And listen, Jamal, I've heard a lot of crazy things in my life, but I'd have to rank that as in the top 10 of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. I mean, this is this this is kind of like uh, where we're headed in terms of the campaign for the presidency here in the United States in 2024. On the one hand, you have Donald Trump, who is calling for, with some Republicans, you know, the defunding of the FBI and the DOJ. Really, really, really crazy stuff. And then you have RFK Jr., who's coming up with these anti-Semitic, racist kind of theories about COVID-19 transmission, which are truly, truly bizarre. And that's kind of where we're headed right now, Jamal. And here's the interesting thing. RFK Jr. is running as a Democrat, but do you know who's really uh, contributing to his campaign? It's Republicans. He's really appealing to large numbers of, you know, kind of out there Republicans. It's kind of interesting. Well, he's appealing to the anti-vaxxers. We know that. I mean, because he's always been kind of like an anti-vaxxer right. and said some kooky stuff. But this is the kookiest. You know, I, I don't it's think... It's pretty kooky. I mean, aside from this, even... Is it scientifically possible to engineer something that will say you know, like a, the flu, let's say, let's talk about it. And it's going to only ta target uh, black people and might target gay people and might target uh, brown people and, and so forth. Can you do that? Can can science no. do something no. like this? You maybe, I'm, no. maybe I'm no. ignorant, but this, no. <laughs> I mean, this guy no. is a kook and he's out of... And then, no. and then and the fact of the matter, here he goes, why does he exclude Ashkenazi Jews? Not all Jews, by the way, because, you know, like... Uh, Mizrahi Jews are like, they have basically the same genetic uh, DNA like people from the Middle East, everybody like Arabs and so forth. And uh, I don't know, man, this is... Uh... It's kind of crazy, Jamal, but what I will say to you and all of our listeners and viewers, welcome to the United States. Welcome to the presidential election of 2024. Kookiness is going to reign and people are saying, oh, Biden is too old, this or that. Okay, maybe he's old. I don't know about too old, but yeah, he's old. But you're you're putting him against like really wacky conspiracy theorists like a Donald Trump, like an RFK Jr. And, you know, all I got to say, man, is get your seatbelts on because it's going to be a crazy year and a half. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Mm -hmm.